Hey, um, I would like for us to do a little um, reading exercise when we start today. So if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 4, I read out of the New King James Version. And um, so uh, what I'd like to do is I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and I'm going to pause when I come to the word rest or rested, and then I'm going to have you guys fill in the blank, okay? Um, One of the things that happens biblically that I've pointed out to you guys a lot over the years is that um, God and the Holy Spirit uses repetition in teaching. So whenever you to a passage, to a section, to a, um, a scripture, and if you, if you notice a word repeated four, five, six, seven times in a short period of time, that's on purpose. There's a reason for that. It's part of the, the, the way that God teaches, and repetition is something that we know is, is, a, is, a, is a, a modality, you know, the style of teaching. And so there's a word in this section that is repeated 11 times, and so we're going to highlight it, and then we're going to talk about it and hopefully understand what's intended with this word rest. So you guys with me? Okay, nice and loud on your part. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard profit them, but being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my, although the work foundation of the world in place of the seventh day in this way, and God on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying, to, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Joshua had given them, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a, for the people of God, For he who has entered his has himself also ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that according to the anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Amen. So I think it's pretty clear that the, the, the section here is dealing with this idea of rest. And so hopefully today we're going to try to understand what the writer of Hebrews is intended and what God's plan is for your life and my life in the area of rest. I think for the title of a a message, if I had a title, it would be the prescription for rest. And and not only a prescription for rest, but exactly what does God um, desire for you and what does he offer um, to you in the area of rest? Now, um, the, the, the thing that is also ingrained in here that we got to understand before we unpack it to keep it in a straight line is this um, kind of battle between, between works and faith, right? We've already established as we studied through the book of James very recently, and I'm glad God put it together that way. And, and James tells us that faith without works is what? Is dead. So we've established that we, we need to be a people who have good works or do good works. And the example that we gave was the soccer fan, the world's greatest soccer fan, do you remember, who 
claimed to be the world's greatest soccer fan, but nothing in his life modeled that or showed that. He didn't watch it on TV. He didn't go to games. He didn't play it for himself. He just made this claim that he was the world's greatest soccer fan. And we would all agree that because there was no evidence in his life that, that he really loved or enjoyed soccer, that that, that claim is bogus. Well, well, James makes the same claim that if you say that you're a believer in Christ and a Christ follower, then naturally there'll be evidence in your life. That's works. It's the evidence of, of your faith in Jesus. And, and so um, Paul tells us, and one of our, our life verses, right, is that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that not of works, lest any man should boast. And so Paul tells us that, that we're not saved by works. And, and does Paul and James's idea of works contradict each other? Absolutely not. Paul's talking in the context of salvation. James is talking in the context of you've already been saved. You're you're a Christ follower. Now there should be some evidence of works in your life. But works are not. And where we get messed up and really where a lot of the isms and schisms and cults and false religions of the world get the horse before the cart is they put works into a salvation category. And works absolutely has nothing to do with your salvation. Saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And you can't add or take away from the work that Jesus did on the cross. To believe that you have to do something in addition is to say that what Jesus did on a cross was insufficient and it's blasphemous. Because the work of Jesus on the cross and his shed blood is sufficient to forgive you of all your sins. Now, now in this context of Hebrews chapter 4, as we bring it back to this topic of rest, we, we do get into the same kind of idea of, are we talking about salvation, or are we, we, is Paul talking to a group that's saved and he's talking about sanctification? Well, there is um, salvation that's, that's, that's brought up here. It's in the context. It's in these verses. So um, let, me, let me ask you this. If, if somebody was a super faithful servant of God in the church, and, and man, every one of us would just recognize that, that they had a heart to work, and they served, they served in Sunday school, they, they came, they cleaned, they were constantly here, and they served God, they gave faithfully, um, and they worked, 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 and everybody admired their service unto the Lord. But this person in their heart didn't believe that God died and rose again didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is that person going to heaven? No, we'd all agree very simply that you you can work, 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 work all you want, but if you don't believe in your heart, you're not going to go to heaven because faith or because salvation is based on believing, not on working. Amen? All right, let's look at verse 4 or chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Therefore... Now, now we're, we're deep into chapter 4 now before we pause to, to talk about it. And I, I don't want to get redundant with this, but I think it's, it's important. The word therefore, whenever it's therefore, you have to stop and see what it's there for. The word therefore is, a, is an application word. It brings you back to what's said before. One of the kind of the proofs or one of the, the, the ideas that Paul is actually the author of Hebrews is this use of therefore. It's, it's very... Um, common in Pauline writings and all the way through Romans and different places, Paul uses this type of teaching style, the therefore. 
Um, you know, ultimately, Jesus wrote the Bible, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And sometimes I'm quoting Paul or Galatians or Ephesians, and I'll slip and I'll say, Jesus said, and then I feel like I need to, like, apologize or fix it. And then later I'm like, no, I don't need to apologize. Even though Paul wrote it, ultimately Jesus said it, right, if, if Jesus wrote the whole Bible. But the therefore, you don't have to go back very far in verse 4, but look at chapter 3, the very last verse, the very last three words. It says what? Because of? So the, the context and the analogy that Paul's using here in, in chapter 4 is the, the nation of Israel. Now, if you're new to church or you're maybe not familiar, as familiar with the Old Testament, I should just kind of give you a little bit of a background. But the nation of Israel, they, they went into bondage in Egypt. As you know, they ended up down there because of a famine in the land of Israel. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, the patriarchs of our faith, Jacob's name later changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. His youngest son, Joseph, was, was the one who his father made a coat of many colors for. And Joseph was um, thrown into a pit by his brothers and carried off into slavery. He ends up in Egypt and becomes the most powerful guy under the Pharaoh in Egypt. And as Joseph is down in Egypt, there's a great famine over the whole land. And Joseph's dad and his brother come to Egypt. And Joseph provides for them there, 70 people in all in the, that, that is the, the Israel, that it's Hebrews. That, that's how it started, 75 people that were there counting Joseph and his group. Well, they all end up in Egypt, and they live there for years, hundreds of years. And Joseph dies, and eventually the Bible says there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And because the nation of Israel had um, grown to be such a, a, a large number of people, the Pharaohs in in, in after the Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, they, they made the Hebrews slaves in Egypt. And they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and God raised up a deliverer, a man by the name of Abraham. No, I mean Moses. And Moses was 40 years as a child of the Pharaoh in Egypt, and 40 years in the Middle and at 80 years old, he's herding sheep and he sees a bush that's on fire and he approaches the bush and, and the bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. And God begins to speak to Moses through the burning bush and tells Moses to go and let his people go and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt and, and they go and they wander and they're on their way from Egypt to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, at the time, there's no Israel, there's no country Israel. It was a place that God had promised them that was inhabited with an indigenous group of people called the Canaanites. And so the nation of Israel, they traveled, they wandered around the wilderness eventually for 40 years in the, in the world's largest funeral march, possibly up to 2 million people at this point that, that started at 75, now up to 2 million. And because of unbelief, God finally said to them, you will not enter the promised land. And anyone at 21 years or older will die before, and the younger group can go in, the next generation can go in, but this generation will not enter the promised land. And, and they saw that group of people, those 2 million people in those 40 years in the wilderness, witnessed more miracles than any other group in human history. Super miraculous what they saw from the time they left Egypt, starting with Moses and the ten plagues to convince Pharaoh to let him go, to, to the Red Sea parting and them going through the Red Sea on dry land, to God providing for them manna for two million people, bread that would be fresh on the ground every morning, quail when they wanted meat that would fly at knee high that they would club and eat, 
God said that he led them during the day by a, by a cloud and at night by a pillar of fire. Moses struck the rock and water came forth when they were thirsty. And they saw miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet because of hardness of heart and because they didn't believe, God finally said, you won't enter the promised land. And Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land himself. But um, God eventually had a plan for Moses. And we oftentimes think it was harsh that God wouldn't allow Moses to go in. But Moses was not allowed to go in. But Moses represented the law. And the law could never lead the people into the promised land. And God raised up a successor to Moses, a guy named Joshua. His name is Jesus in the, in the Greek. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Now, um, in a nutshell, and then we'll move on, and if I've bored you to death already, I'm sorry, but the, 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 this, this story in the Bible is a picture of your life and my life. Very important. We look at the children of Israel, and we see their struggle, and we see their murmuring and complaining against Moses and against the Lord. And, and miracle after miracle after miracle. You would think the ten plagues in Egypt would have just been enough. The parting of the Red Sea. The drowning of the Egyptian army. And five minutes later, they're whining and complaining. God's not going to show up. God's going to take... We're gonna, you, Moses, you brought us in the desert to die. We want to go back to Egypt. Yeah, we were slaves, but they had garlic and leeks. And we want to go back. And, and yeah, they didn't have falafels. And, and by the way, falafels, they're not awful. Don't believe what Pat tells you. It's a falafel. We even wrote a song about it. It's a falafel. It's not awful. Um, no, actually, they're not great either. It's, it's definitely not a bacon cheeseburger. But um, So you, you, you look at, the, at the, these people, and they're grumbling, complaining, and you want to just slap them, and you just want to say, did you, did you forget what God just did like 30 seconds ago? I mean, you were thirsty and you, you, and you prayed and Moses struck a rock and water came out and you were hungry and, and God made quail fly at your knees. What more do you need? And nobody in all of human history before or after seen as many miracles as they did and yet lacked faith that God would show up and trusted the Lord and continued to murmur and complain. And then we, 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 we say, what is wrong with you? And the Bible says that's a picture of you. That is, a, that is an identical picture of, of Christian living in the New Testament. And, and for us, we, we, we oftentimes we see miracles and we see God move and work and we can still continue to doubt. When the, when the nation of Israel left Egypt and they went over the Red Sea, every part is a, is a phase in Christian living. The Red Sea would be the water baptism or the time in Egypt would be before Christ. And your time before you receive the Lord in your heart is your personal Lord and Savior. And then you, you're left bondage, you're, you're delivered from bondage, and you cross the Red Sea through water baptism. And then 40 years in the wilderness of, of the, the, the period of sanctification where we've come from being born again to, to becoming more like Jesus every day and growing in our faith. And then they crossed the Jordan River, which would be the experience of, of that, 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 that we've been crucified with Christ. And we identify as servants of Jesus. And we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit for service and to be a witness. And every part of it, again, is a picture of, of Christian living. And, and yet this group, when, when they were not allowed to enter, you would think maybe it was because of their sins and their bad behavior. Maybe it was because of all the problems, and, and yet the Bible tells us very clearly why they didn't enter. Why didn't they get to enter? 
Because of their sins? Because of what? One thing. Everybody, you got to know it, right? You heard it? Because of unbelief. And God puts a, a major emphasis biblically on us just believing. And what does that do? And what does that accomplish? I don't know, but it's, it's definitely, it's biblical. It's God's will. It's God's desire that you believe, that you simply believe. I don't know. Part of me is like, I, I, I realize that maybe if I was God or you were God and you, you sent your son and you died and you did all of these things, these wonderful things, and you created and you have a future and a plan and you've created a place where the streets are paved with gold and, and you're going to bring people there and let them rest and celebrate with you for all of eternity, and then they don't even believe you exist, I guess it'd be a little troublesome. Maybe it'd bother you a little bit. You just want them to believe. But God's desire for you is to believe. It's the way that he's laid it out. Heaven and hell is a difference in believing and, and not believing. And that word believe, it carries a little bit more with it than I just, I believe that chair's there. Um, I trust in the God. I've surrendered to this God. I've given my life to him as I believe. Because if you believe, there's action, as James said, that goes with your belief. Amen? So the nation of Israel didn't enter because of unbelief. And, and the writer here of Hebrews is going use that as an example, but he's giving us a prescription for a heavenly rest. Now, as we go on, he says, um, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So there is a promise that yet remains. Why, why, why does Paul say, or why does the writer here say there's a promise that yet remains? Because he's talking to Hebrew Christians of his day that would have held Moses and Abraham and Joshua in, in high esteem. And, and there's a promise that yet remains. If the nation of Israel going into the promised land was the promise of rest that God was, was offering, then why does a promise yet remain? And his point is that that's not the promised land. The promised land doesn't represent in the life of a believer in the analogy uh, heaven. Because when they got into, they crossed the Jordan River and they got into the promised land, what was there? Battles and giants. When you get to heaven, is there going to be battles and giants? So it's not a picture of heaven. And he's saying that, that in Jesus, there, there's a rest that's promised that Joshua didn't deliver, that Moses didn't deliver, that King David later, a thousand years later, said that the rest was yet future. And that rest is offered to you and me and Jesus alone. And it's not based on works or on, on, on do, do, do. It's based on believing. Verse 2 says, For if indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith to those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. So how do you enter that rest? What about working? So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Do you, do you know what works are left to do in order for you to enter God's rest? What work is left? There is none. Zero. Zilch. Nada. Done. Done. Completed on the cross. Jesus, or the Bible says here that, that completed from the foundation of the world. The Bible says in another place that, that, that Christ was designed, was, was called to die before the foundation of the world for your sins and my sins. Completed on the cross is the work of salvation, and there's nothing left to do just to believe. You know, one of the, um, 
One of the hardest, I think, concepts in life for us to get across is to simply rest in Jesus. Do you you know that Jesus blesses you? God blesses your life because he wants to. But but we cannot get away from the idea that, that blessing is earned by good behavior. Somebody say, do good. Okay, how many of you guys, anybody grow up, have like really like together parents and you had like, or maybe you are those parents and you have this um, chart on the fridge. I went to my friend's house and they had this and I was like, I was always envious of this, envious of it. I thought, well, when I'm a parent, I'm going to get one of those. I'm going to do that. And it's this chart that goes on the fridge and it has all their chores. And when they do something good, they get a star for the week and it, there's rewards that are based and they know exactly what they have to do and when they do it. And Anybody? My wife's shaking her head like, not in our house. <laughs> I'll bury my foot in your hind parts. You don't take out the trash. I'll give you a star. So, so we, we, in life, in, in all areas, it's just true that, that, and it's true in so many areas of life that good behavior results in blessing. Good behavior results in rewards and positive rewards. And then we take this concept into our Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't want or that God doesn't, you know, desire in your heart and my life good behavior. That's not the point. But what what we have to try to divorce ourselves from, what we have to get clear is that God doesn't bless you because because of good behavior. God blesses you in spite of good behavior. God blesses you because he wants to bless you, because there's rest in just coming and knowing Jesus. And, and, and what happens is, you know, because I'm aware of my bad behavior, I, I oftentimes I don't expect God to bless me because I'm aware of some, some bad behavior and sins in my life. And then it's always a shock to me. And, and, and as much as I have lived it, it's still a concept that's hard for me to understand. But God oftentimes, and again, I want to be careful because I'm not saying God rewards bad behavior, but God will bless me anyways. And it's always a reminder to me that it's not because I earned it. For example, um, when, when I started teaching the Bible, I, I used to think that if I, if I fasted before I taught, if I, uh, and I still do kind of as a practice and hopefully not legalistically, but, you know, and, and if I'm teaching, I don't eat before I teach and, and, I'll, and maybe a day I'll fast for a message or something or, um, or I'll, I, I, when I first started teaching, I, I thought that if I spoke in tongues and I prayed in tongues for the same message, so I'm teaching a 45-minute message, so pr- to prepare for that, I would speak in tongues for 45 minutes praying, and, and then I felt like, okay, I, I did this thing, and I did good, and now God's going to bless me in the message. And then I'd show up, and I'd be tired, and I hadn't eaten, and I had no energy, and you know, it was, it was in the flesh, and, um, and, and it just didn't go well. I felt like, well, God has to bless me because I fasted and I prayed. Because I did my part, God's going to show up and bless the message. And it never worked. And then again, there was a couple times where um, the Holy Spirit showed up and he spoke and he changed hearts and he moved through a message that I gave. And it was the worst week that I had. Worst preparation and no fasting and not a lot of praying. And, and, and again, I'm not making a recipe for God to show up and do something good by being bad. That's not what I'm saying. But God allowed that and allowed me to see that a couple of times to make a point to me that he doesn't bless me because I've earned it. He blesses me because he's a good, good father. He blesses me because he loves me, right? What is the number one word in the New Testament God uses to describe himself to you and me? 
You should know this by now if you've been around here. Number one word, more, more than any other word in the New Testament. Jesus used it the most. When you pray, say, time to go get the Sunday school teachers. <laughs> Sending you all back to Sunday school. These, just teasing. The word is Father. Are you guys just being shy? I know you know the answer because I preach that every Sunday. The word is what? Father. Father. That's the word that God uses to describe himself to you and me. And in our relationship with God, it's a very good analogy of a father, that God is our heavenly father. Jesus said, when you pray, say, our father. And, and for you, maybe you are a father or maybe you have a father. And you understand that in a father-son, father-daughter relationship, there's a certain dynamic. And you bless your son or your daughter. Your father has relationship with you because of who you are positionally. And he loves you and he blesses you. And not just because you, you do what you're supposed to do, right? God blesses you in spite of you. Amen? You know, do you mean it's not my effort that brings about God's blessing? No. It's not your effort that brings about God's blessing. Is that hard for you to receive? And again, I'm not saying that, that, that you, you, know, you don't make an effort or you don't have efforts. What I'm telling you is the rest is simply in Jesus. It's relational. To rest in Jesus, to have good works, that God is a good, good father, and he's not mad at you. You know, one of, one, of our, one of our biggest troubles, too, you know, receiving grace gracefully is one of the hardest things to do. Pastor Chuck used to say that all the time. For example, let's say today you get home from church, and uh, me and Pat, we show up at your, at your front door about 3 o'clock today, and we have a brand new top-of-the-line $5,000 washer and dryer on the back of the truck that we just want to bless you with. Show up at your house. How are you going to receive that? You're going to say, oh my gosh, great guys. Come in and go right over here. Get them old ones out of here. Well, how are we going to react? How would you react honestly if I showed up at your house today with a brand new washer and dryer? Oh, you didn't have to do that. Really? You, you, you know, receiving that grace gracefully is difficult. And, 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 and when it's God's grace, it is. It's, it's, difficult sometimes to receive that grace so as we go on the work is finished that was verse three verse four says for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way and god rested on the seventh day from all his works hey was god tired you guys ever create the the universe he'd be tired you, you know there's the, and, I, and i'm not very good at this stuff but when i hear it i'm always super impressed and maybe you guys have heard it. Louis Giglio does an amazing study on the size of our universe. And he starts with the earth and then he goes to the bigger ones that are just within the Milky Way galaxy. And when you get to the biggest planet star thing that's in the Milky Way galaxy, it, it, can't, it doesn't even compare to the earth. When, when you get to the earth, like the earth will fit into the sun 100,000 times or something. And then the sun will fit into this thing a million times. Like, it is so giant, you can't wrap your mind around it, and it's one star in our galaxy. And, and, it's, and it's moving in orbit. What kind of power did it take to, to, to put that thing into motion? The Bible tells us. You know what it says? The finger of God. And then the Bible says that God measures the universe with the span of his hand. That's from his pinky to his thumb. So when God's measuring from the earth to beetle geese, he just, that's how big God is. It's a big God. But did he get tired when 
he, when he, when did he rest? He was tired. No, God didn't get tired. He rested from his labors. In other words, his, his work was complete. It was done. There was no more work to do. He had finished creation. And it says that he rested from his labors, from his creation. And in that, God prescribed and God laid out for you and I uh, uh, that we should also rest. And throughout the Old Testament, we have one in seven days was called a Sabbath, a Sabbath day rest. The Sabbath is from sundown on Friday to, sun, to sundown on, su- on Saturday. That's a Sabbath. And for six days a man shall work, and on the seventh day he shall rest. And in Israel today, they're, they're very, very particular in observing this day of rest and Sabbath. And the Bible says that you should do no work on So when we go to Israel if, on, on Sabbath, in the hotels, you get into an elevator and you don't push the buttons. It just automatically stops on every floor because it would be work for you to push the button. And if you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, you can get in the elevator. And if you get to a fancy hotel, they have an even number elevator and an odd number, and then it'll stop on every second floor. I think they're having some now their voice operated that it's not constituted work that you can tell it which floor you want to go to and you don't have to push the button. And again, a whole, a whole list of, of things, of do's and don'ts, of things that were constituted work on the Sabbath. Here in the, you know, in the American church, we oftentimes, if I say Sabbath, immediately what comes to your mind? Sunday. We think Sunday is the Sabbath. Well, technically, Sunday's not even the Sabbath. And, and, and one of the, the things that you'll get, one of the things you'll hear from Christians, and I heard it just very recently from, from a person who was coming to church here for a second, and um, we began to have this discussion, and it was his opinion that we as a church should observe the Sabbath, and we should, we should worship on Saturdays and, and take a, a Sabbath day rest. But again, is, and you'll hear that. And, and it's something that, that again, from, from opinion and the parts of the Old Testament, how much of them do we have to follow? Does God want you today in the New Testament to have to observe the Sabbath? Is it, is it legalistically, is you, are you required to keep the Sabbath? Some will argue that you are. Jay, or is Jay, Pastor Jay? He, uh, he said today, he says, funny you're talking about this today. He goes, the first time in forever, he said, but I have to go to work after church today, so I'm interested to know what you've got to say about this. But Again, um, you know, here, here's, here's the deal. When we get to the Old Testament, we don't throw it out. That's never our, never our style. It's never our opinion. There's parts of the, of the law of Moses that we absolutely are not required to follow anymore. So the hard part is to say which part of the law of Moses are we to have to follow and which part are we not. Well, what we don't do is just take it and throw it all in the trash. Because when we take into consideration what we're looking for is the heart of God. And in order to find the heart of God... You take into consideration Genesis to Revelation and the entire counsel of God's word. For example, in the Old Testament, it says that one of the rules of, of the law of Moses is that you're not allowed to sleep in the same bed with your wife on, while she's on her period. So when you go in Israel, they still observe this today. And, and one of the things you'll find um, interesting about Israel is that every hotel that we go into, there's two twin beds there. Now, what the setup is, if you're like Lydia and I, when we first were newlywed on our honeymoon in Israel, we'd move the nightstand out of the middle and push the two beds together. But the reason is that because, because of the law of Moses, they're, they're only twin beds in all, all the famous fancy hotels in Israel. I told, I told our guide last year, I said, I figured out finally how to lead Jews to Jesus. I'm going to get a big queen-sized bed on rollers. I'm going to push it through the old city. 
and, and, and I'm going to have a bacon cheeseburger. And I'm going to tell them, in Jesus, you can sleep on a queen-size bed and eat a bacon cheeseburger. They'll, they'll all come to Jesus. But are we required, and how much of the law of Moses are we required to follow? Are we required to follow the, the Sabbath? And some, even Christians, even, you know, and our tendency is to go back to it. Now, just say this. You're, you're, by law, you're not required to keep the Sabbath. Is it a good practice? Is it a godly practice for you to institute a day of rest? And, and, and we, we do that, right? The fact that you guys are here on Sunday, you're probably going to have a, a pretty easy day, laid back day today. And in essence, you seek God today. You know, but what we say is that, that our Sabbath is every day. And we seek the Lord every day. We want to serve the Lord every day. And yes, we kind of plan a day of our week to, to honor the Lord and come to his house. But religiously, we're not gaining any um, status with God, position with God, any rest by, by observing a Sabbath religiously. It's relationship. Jesus said, listen, he is this, the fulfillment of Sabbath. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you Shabbat. Same word. Same exact word. And whenever you see the word rest or Sabbath in the Bible, it's the same word, interchangeable. Rest and Sabbath is the same word. And Jesus said, I will give you Sabbath. He is your Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of your Sabbath. And rest comes in Jesus. You know, what, what do we think about? What do you guys think about if you, if you feel like, man, you're wore down, you're, you're due, you need rest. Where do you go? Where do you go in your life to get rest? What do you guys do? Generally, right, we go vacation. Man, if I could go on a vacation... Some of you guys are going, wait, vacations work, especially with kids, right? Maybe you've had a hard day or a long week and you need some rest. And so, you know, you, you think you're going you're gonna to go home and eat potato chips and watch seven episodes of your favorite Netflix series. How, do you, how rested do you feel after a bag of potato chips and seven episodes of your favorite Netflix series? Do you feel rested? Do you feel complete after vacation? The rest that God is promising you and I is deep. It's not vacation. It's not location. It's not vegging out in front of the TV, taking time off, doing nothing. You know, the other thing I'd say is when you do go on a vacation, don't leave Jesus at home. If your vacation consists of, you know, well, I've, I've, I'm going to leave my Bible and leave Jesus at home so I can go and get some rest, you'll, you'll never get rest or fulfilled. That rest that Jesus offers you is it's, it's deeper than, than a nap. It's, it's soul rest, and it's, and it's deep. It's like the difference between happiness and joy. And I'm out of time, so I can't unpack that concept. But, but rest that Jesus wants to offer you here in this chapter is, is, is fulfilling. Bring your Bible with you and you go on vacation. You really want rest? You really want fulfillment? Seek that in Jesus. Seek that relationally through time of Jesus. You know the time I feel the most rested, the most complete, the most fulfilled? Are, are after times of, of real intimacy with Jesus through prayer and, and reading and studying and spending time with God. Just letting God, letting God speak to me and hearing that still small voice. Amen? Those are the things that are going to fulfill your life. Those are the things that are going to bring for you what you're looking for. And you know what we do? We want to we put those things behind us um, so that we think we can get rest by going to our easy box or our nothing box. But usually what you find and what I'll find, right, is that even in our nothing box, we don't feel any better when it's done. Amen? All right, it says, um, in verse 4, it says, For he has spoken, verse 5, And in this place they shall not enter the rest, 
Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So again, the, the writer here is, is, at the time of the writing of this, he's making a case to the Hebrew Christians who are putting an emphasis upon the, the rest that the Old Testament offers in the Promised Land. And, and then he says Joshua didn't offer that rest. There was giants in, in Canaanite, and it wasn't the rest that was spoken of. And if it was, he's making the case, then why did David a thousand years later say that the rest was yet future? Because that rest is in Jesus, and that rest is fulfilled in Jesus. Um, you guys remember Mary and Martha, right? Now, uh, try to decide. Let, let's go. Let me have you guys turn to uh, John chapter six real quick, and then we're going to talk about Mary and Martha just for a second. But you guys got to see this in the context of Hebrews chapter four. Um, this is the key verse in John 6:28 and 29. Jesus kind of finally, I think, gives a, a real definite answer. Sometimes I wonder like, hey, God, why don't you just give us like a yes or no, really concrete answer? Nobody's got to debate about it. Nobody's got to, you know, argue about it. It's just right there, black and white, we can all agree. It's funny because he says, I've done that a million times and you still argue about it. Well, here's one of them. In, in John 6:28, in this idea of works and rest, it says, Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So they want to know. They finally want an answer, a plain and black, plain and white, black and white answer. What are the works of God and what should we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, well, you better not lay carpet on Saturday, on Sundays. You better tithe. You better give. You better work. You better show up. Kind of, I think to me, maybe in a, in a, in a mind-blown moment for the disciples and maybe for those who heard, what did Jesus say? What is the work that he wanted? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. And now I'm sure they're on pins and needles. This is the work of God. Are you ready? And then the crescendo that you believe in him whom he sent. Amen. Somebody said hallelujah. Praise God. God wants you to believe. It's relational. It's relational. You, you want to end up frustrated in ministry? You want to end up frustrated as a Christ follower? You believe in your heart that you're earning God's blessings by your works, and you start doing things to, to earn God's favor. You start giving financially to the church because you think it's earning God's favor. Now, across the board... It's been very clear that God blesses you not based on effort, but based on the condition of your heart. Illustrated a million times in the Bible, right? The widow's two mites. All the rich men came, hundreds of dollars, whatever they dropped in the offering. This woman comes up, two mites in the offering. Jesus said she gave more than everybody else. It wasn't in the amount of the gift. What she gave, what Jesus was honoring in her was a condition of her heart. Jesus said, don't give, don't do when you go out and pray, don't pray in public so everybody can see you and expect that that God's going to still reward you. Instead, close the door because what God will honor in your life and in my life is is the condition of your heart. Amen. So if you want to be frustrated, you start doing things in the flesh. Let's look at Martha really quick. 
In um, John's Gospel, in chapter 11, we see this illustrated. Now, um, in John's Gospel, in chapter 11, in verse 17. Now, um, the first story, I won't have time to read it, but the first time that we meet Mary and Martha, it says Jesus shows up at his friend's house. Mary and Martha, and they have a brother. What's Mary and Martha's brother's name? Lazarus. And they're there, and, and Martha's in the kitchen cooking, and, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And every time we find Mary, three times in the Bible, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And, and so, so Martha comes out of the kitchen all frustrated, and, and she says, Jesus, don't you care? Now, whenever you start a sentence to Jesus with don't you care, you're, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. You're going the wrong direction. Don't you care that, that I'm in the kitchen working hard and my sister is out here and she won't help me? Tell her to get up and come in the kitchen and help me. And Jesus said, Martha, you're concerned and troubled with many things. But Mary has chosen the better place and it will not be taken from her. And, and, and then we see Mary, who's this example of sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha body who's doing, doing, doing. Now, I can appreciate Martha as a pastor because I, I know that, in, in, that, that God um, raises people with a servant's heart. In Nehemiah, those folks that had a mind to work, and, and those are valuable people in ministry and life that serve and, and do the Martha stuff. But the lesson is that we can do the Martha stuff with the merry heart. And, 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 and if we're doing the Martha stuff without the merry heart, there's no reward. And we're going to end up frustrated and burnt out. And, and, and so some people would say, well, if you're Mary and every time you see Mary and if we're all Mary and we all just sit at the feet of Jesus, then nothing would ever get done. And, and how would any works get done? But I want to tell you, no works get done unless you first sit at the feet of Jesus. Because true works and a true call of God is, is you're inspired to do work. It's, it's through the voice and that still small voice. And it's through worship and spending time at the feet of Jesus that God puts stuff on your heart that he wants you to do for him. Stuff that you do for joy. God tells you to come and clean the church and vacuum and wash all the windows. And, and if that's not inspired by God, if that's just in your flesh and you have this idea that you're going to go do that unto the Lord, you're going to show up here and you're just going to hope that the pastor happens to walk in and sees you working real hard. And if he doesn't or if somebody doesn't come and appreciate and see what you've done, you're, you're going to be frustrated by the time. It's not going to last very long. But, but if, if you sit at the feet of Jesus and Jesus begins to put things in your heart, you know that, that he's watching and that he's got your back. Now, we see this huge difference in the, in the life of Mary and Martha. And, and the reason is because Martha, or I'm sorry, Mary was somebody who, who gained um, good works and motivation through relationship. And that, that's my whole message. I don't want you to miss that. Is that to rest in Jesus, the rest that's offered in Hebrews 4, the works that, that, that God wants you to do, that it's all relational. That, that God wants with you first relationship. And if you'll focus on, if you'll get first your relationship with Jesus right, then God will put good works in your path. God will motivate you. God will show you things that he wants you to do. But, but we've got to keep the horse before the cart. 
Look at this story. This is so fascinating between the different personalities. Um, one who, who's a person of service that's born out of worship and relationship, and one who just is kind of bitter. As Jesus already said of Martha, Martha, you are concerned with many things. Look at John's gospel in, in chapter 11 in verse 17. It says, so when Jesus came, he found that they were already had been in the tomb four days. And now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary and comforted them concerning their brother. And then Martha, as soon, somebody say, as soon. Remember that. As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. And now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Turn to, turn the page to verse 32. Hold your finger there. We're going to go back. Read verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's Mary. Go back. Verse 21. Lord, Martha, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Somebody say same exact words. So Martha shows up, same exact words. A little bit later, Mary's going to meet Jesus along the road. Same exact words. Watch the two different responses that Jesus is going to have to the same exact words based on his relationship and his intimacy with one versus the other. Now, Martha, who was, you know, she was concerned. She, she didn't spend time um, worshiping and sitting at the feet of Jesus. And, and she processed life with anxiety. She processed life with trouble and things bothered her. And when something went wrong in her life, she, she had this angst. How do I know that? Because, again, go back with me to um, verse number 20, 1120. It says, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. So Martha was like, Oh, Jesus is coming? My brother's been dead four days. I'm going to go give him a piece of my mind. And she marched right down out on the dirt road, and she was going to go find Jesus and ask him, Where have you been? My brother's been dead for four days. And she showed up and she said, Jesus, had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then Jesus says to Martha, look what he says to Martha. We get, we get the great teaching. And again, I'm always thankful. I'm always appreciative for Martha because she delivers. But I just want you to see the difference, right? So, so Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. If you, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus teaches, and he gives, he gives her one of the great I am statements, and he encourages her, and he tells her something that she previously didn't know. You can trust me, Martha. I got this. It's okay. And Martha, who's all anxious and anxiety, I, now what was Mary doing when Martha was marching her butt out there to find Jesus and tell him what was going on and give her a piece of his mind, her mind? What was she doing? How was she just chilling in the house? Her brother died. Jesus didn't show up, and now he's on his way, and she's chilling in the house. How, how is that possible? Why is that possible? Huh? Well, what, what was it in Mary? Jesus. I don't think that Mary was like, oh, man, Jesus is going to show up. He's going to raise my brother from the dead. We're going we're gonna to eat some barbecue tonight. All good. I think Mary was like, I don't know what's going to happen, um, but I trust God. I trust Jesus. I know Jesus has my best interests at hand. I know Jesus can handle this. 
Um, where did Mary receive that revelation that Martha missed? Where do we find Mary every time we sitting at the feet of Jesus? So at some point, by sitting at the feet of Jesus relationally, Mary received a peace that surpassed understanding. She received a joy in her life and, 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 a, and an ability to, to process the death of her brother with trust in God and not freak out. But that comes at the feet of Jesus. That comes, that rest that Jesus offers in Hebrews 4, it comes relationally through knowing Jesus personally and intimately. And when you know Jesus as a good, good father, personally and intimately, God gives you a peace that surpasses understanding. When things go wrong and awry and terrible in your life, you don't freak out. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you think that that, that God's going to do this amazing miracle and that's why you're chill. You're chill because whether God does the amazing miracle or not, you trust him. You love him. Now, now, remember I told you they use the same exact words? So jump down to uh, verse 32, John 11. We're almost done, you guys. It says, when Mary came to Jesus and she saw him, she fell down at his feet. Where do we find Mary? Even as the road, Jesus is walking. Martha's there, you know, doing the whole head wag. Where were you, Jesus? My brother's dead. And here comes Martha. They're on the road. They're not in a house. They're walking. They're both walking. And yet, where do we still find Mary? She sits down at his feet. Oh, love it, right? So she sits down at his feet. And and what does she say? The same exact words her sister just said. Do you think they rehearsed it? I don't think so. I think they were sisters. They were very similar in a lot of ways. And that was what was on both of their hearts. And, and she didn't know what Martha had just said to Jesus. She just shows up and she says what's on her heart. And she says the exact words, Lord, if you had been here in verse 35. Now, verse 33 and 34 is, is a quick exchange that doesn't take any time. So from 33, we go to 35. And what is Jesus's reaction to Mary? Verse 35. He wept. Ah. Oh. In verse 30, 34, it says that, that through groaning, he asks a question. Where, where did they lay him? And, and all that is, that little exchange in the middle there, it already says he's groaning. He's already beginning to cry. As soon as Mary asked the question, Jesus burst. It says Jesus wept. You guys ever have to go pick up a, a child from the school office at school? You know, a little boy, a little girl, and they scrape their knee. They got a bloody knee, and... They're in the school office and the principal's there, teacher's there. And, and, and as soon as mom comes walking in the door and they're trying to be tough, and as soon as they lay eyes on mom, what happens? <laughs> you know, just the emotions get the best of them and they just, they just start, you know. And, and you see this kind of exchange between Mary and Jesus that's so powerful and so different because relationally Jesus didn't have to fix Mary. He didn't have to give Mary a theological lesson on how he was the resurrection and the life and, and, and reassure Mary that she could trust him and that he was going to take care of it. But because of their intimacy and closeness in relationship and because Mary, where Mary chose to, to sit as a worshiper of Jesus, the reaction is so much different and it's relational. It's all relational. And Jesus begins to weep. I wonder if there was an embrace. He just hugged her. He loved her. And they cried together. 
And I love Jesus in his humanity who's weeping at the death of Lazarus and at the, at the, at the embrace of his, of, his, of his friend that he loves deeply, Mary, and, and her brother Lazarus. You know, and, and, and as we go on, we get a little commentary from the Holy Spirit, and it says that Jesus loved Martha. And I like that. I like that even through all of this, and even Martha with a little diff, different personality, that the Bible reminds us that Jesus loved Martha. It wasn't a matter of, of, of God's love. He didn't love necessarily, you know, uh, Martha, Mary better than Martha, but relationally, he was definitely closer to her than Martha. Now, we're, we're almost out of time. Let's have the worship team come up, close us in a song. Um, I'm going to finish just one verse in Hebrews 11 or 4 before, as the worship team's coming up. verse 11, I'm skipping down, I know. In verse 11, it says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. The King James, I love what the King James says in verse 11. It says, Let us work hard to find that rest. Isn't that kind of the opposite of rest? But it says here to be diligent to find that rest. So here's your marching orders. From, from the, the Apostle Paul, the writer of Hebrews, from Jesus himself. Therefore, listen, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest. God wants you to enter his rest. The rest of salvation. The rest that Jesus is superior over all the things in the law. That, that God offers for you relationally a joy and a peace that surpasses understanding. That, that for you to take an opportunity to enter into the, the joy of the Lord. And with that comes a rest. A rest for your weary souls. Jesus said if you're heavy laden or you're burdened, come to him and he will give you rest. He will give you Sabbath. And God offers that for you. It doesn't mean that, you know, Mary had an amazing relationship. Mary was, was an amazing example in the Bible of somebody through relationship that had an amazing trust for God and what he was going to do in her life. And guess what? Mary's brother still died. She still faced hard things. She just processed them differently. She, she, just, she just dealt differently. She dealt in trust, and God offers that. I'm not saying, and never do I preach, that your brother doesn't die if you, if, if you relationally are close to Jesus. That's not what the Word promises. But the Word does promise a rest. And it says for you here to diligently seek the rest that Jesus offers you. If you don't know the Lord and, and say Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you today to give your life to Jesus. I encourage you today to receive him through faith. It's not of works. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And I don't want you to ever think that there was two systems in the Bible, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. It's just simply not true. People got saved from Adam and Eve to you and I the same exact way. Everybody got saved that's going to get saved in human history through faith. It was Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Yes, they had a different dispensation. They lived under the law of Moses. They still got saved in believing in the promise of a Messiah. It's through faith. And yes, it is that simple. And so simply put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.